Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Russ Cannell finds options for inflation protection. Christine Benz assigns us some tasks for the last days of summer. Chris Inton discusses the budding cannabis industry. And Ben Johnson explains how a fund's rebalance affects returns. Let's get started. Here are Russ Kennel from Morningstar Research Services and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Inflation is making a comeback this year. In the new issue of Morningstar Fund Investor, editor Russ Kinnell unpacks a variety of direct and indirect hedges for inflation protection and whether they're worth owning. He's here today to share his take. Thanks for being here, Russ. Glad to be here. So let's start by first taking a step back and talk a little bit about what's going on with inflation today and how big a risk it really is to certain types of investors. Yeah, so uh, the latest reported inflation is, has definitely ticked up. It's up about 5% year on year, though, of course, a year ago, as you recall, the economy was hitting the brakes, so it's not a perfect number, but inflation is definitely uh, picking up. I think, though, it, it's probably not necessarily expected to continue rising. So I think it's, it's a, a bit of a threat, but it's not a big threat because some of this is just the economy ramping back, back up, hitting some bottlenecks. So most economists expect things to settle down. And of course, if you're watching the bond market, the bond market is acting like there's no inflation. So the bond market signals that the consensus is inflation is not out of hand. And you say you point out in your article that bond-heavy portfolios are, in fact, a little more at risk when it comes to inflation. What types of bonds and bond funds in particular sort of face the greatest inflation risk? Yeah, so uh, really it's, it's uh, the, the higher quality ones where a lot of your, your uh, value is coming down the road when you get the, the payment at the end. Uh, and so that tends to be longer-term bond funds, higher quality bond funds. Uh, so they're more susceptible to uh, rising inflation. You talk in your article about two different types of funds that are considered to be more direct inflation hedges. And um, the first being funds that invest in treasury inflation protected securities. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how these funds work, how well they really do guard against inflation and what the caveats are. Yeah, so this is obviously a pretty direct hedge because uh, the treasury issues inflation-protected securities in which the principal is uh, adjusted up and down based on the CPI. So uh, essentially, you're pretty much protected that you'll get that uh, interest rate and then it will you know, adjust for uh, inflation. And so there are funds that uh, own uh, in these tips, either on a short-term or a long-term uh, maturity. And so these are pretty direct hedge that, that you can uh, really depend on. You're not going to get big yields, but at least you you know you've got some protection there. And then a second direct inflation hedge that you talk about in your article are commodities funds. Let's talk a little bit about what the different types of commodities funds are, what they're investing in, and again, how, what, how good of a job have they actually done uh, protecting against inflation? That's right. So, so commodities, you're getting sort of the other angle, and this is you're essentially uh, investing uh, more or less directly in commodities. So typically a commodities fund will have uh, a lot of energy exposure, some agricultural exposure, and some precious metals exposure. Uh, those are all obviously components of inflation and tend to surge uh, when uh, inflation is on the rise. Now, of course, uh, commodities are far more vulnerable than TIPS. So if you own a TIPS fund, 
uh, year on year, you might, you might have some ups and downs, but it's pretty mild-mannered. Commodities funds are very much boom or bust. Uh, next year, you might make 50%, you might lose 50%. So it's a very volatile hedge. You have to be pretty careful uh, in using it because uh, it really is a, a very, one of the most volatile mutual fund types out there. So you definitely have to be careful. I think the, the, the best way to handle that is if you're going to invest there, uh, keep it at 5% or below of your portfolio because you just don't want it dominating uh, your portfolio. It's, it's just really volatile. And the long-term returns lately have not been very good. Obviously, that can change, but uh, it, it, you definitely have to be careful there. And then you talk about a couple of more indirect um, inflation hedges in your article, one being bank loan funds. Let's talk a little bit about those and under what environments bank loan funds would do pretty well against inflation. Yeah, so bank loans adjust for changes in interest rates. So these are loans to corporations. Almost all of them are below investment grade. Uh, and they adjust uh, as uh, interest rates change. And interest rates and inflation tend to go in the same direction, but it's not a perfect hedge. So uh, it, it's, it, it tends to, to be close, but particularly in a short run, they don't have to uh, move in sync. And then lastly, there are gold funds. Let's talk a little bit about those, how good of a job they do against inflation. And they seem to be another one of those boomer bust uh, types of funds, as, as you referred to earlier, right? Exactly. It's, it's, it's very, very extreme performance. And they tend to do well when inflation rises. They tend to do well when uh, the economy has a problem. There's some world crisis. But they don't always do that. Sometimes they sell off sharply. So it's, it's fairly random. And of course, if commodities funds include gold as one component, uh, having just gold uh, is, is uh, less great, I think, as, as a hedge because it's only one component. Of course, most of us, gold is not a big input in our actual uh, purchases day to day. Uh, so it's, it's a useful hedge, but again, a, a limited one. Well, Russ, thank you so much for your pers perspective on these inflation hedges and not quite hedges today. We appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, here is Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. with her financial to-do list for August. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski for Morningstar. Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance, Christine Benz, has a few financial to-dos that you can cross off your list even as you're savoring the last full month of summer. She's here today to discuss them with us. Hi, Christine. Nice to see you. Hi, Susan. Great to be here. So at the start of the new year, you came up with a list of month-by-month -month financial to-dos for 2021. And um, on the list for August is to tackle estate planning, which doesn't sound like a fun way to spend the last day of summer. Uh, why should that be top of mind for investors now? Well, the brutally honest answer is that it's a long year and there are some <laughs> months where there's not some natural task that lends itself to that particular month. But another consideration, Susan, is that this pandemic has really highlighted how quickly things can change for people and for families. A lot of people have experienced a lot of very sad losses in their lives over the past year and a half. And so I do think that it's a reminder to make sure that we are leaving things in good shape for our loved ones 
And this is important no matter our life stage for younger folks as well as older adults. So that's another reason to take a look at it. Now, a lot of people might associate estate planning with the very wealthy, that only wealthy people need to have an estate plan. Um, But you say that that's not really the case, that there's good reason for most people to have some sort of estate plan. Can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. I think a lot of people do latch on to that estate tax, and the exclusion amount is very high today. It's almost $12 million per person. So you could be a married couple and die with uh, upwards of $20 million and not have that subject to estate tax. So a lot of people assume, well, if I'm not in that zone, and most of us aren't, then I don't need to worry about this. But estate planning is so much broader than that. And basically the idea is you're leaving a plan so that your wishes could be carried out for your own wealth, for the welfare of your children, for your health. And so you're leaving in place a plan to have your wishes executed in accordance with, with, with what you want them to be. So that's really the main idea of having an estate plan. So what are some of the elements that people should be thinking about including in an estate plan? Well, the key ingredients would be beneficiary designations at the top of the list. A lot of people don't think that these fall under estate planning, but they absolutely do. And most assets pass through beneficiary designations. So if you have IRA assets, if you have company retirement plans, if you have taxable accounts, you can make beneficiary designations for those accounts. So see to those. Um, Powers of attorney, naming powers of attorney for health care and financial matters. That's also under the estate planning umbrella. Wills, certainly, and obviously living wills, sometimes called advanced directives, where you leave some detail about how you would want your your health care handled if you were unable to make decisions for yourself. And finally, guardianships of minor children are also a big category under the heading of estate planning. So you'll want to be thoughtful about who you would want to entrust with the care of your children if you were unable to do that. And you suggest that, you know, people think beyond just the legal documents that are associated with an estate plan and think more in terms of things that you should be thinking about to sort of smooth the process of of passing things along. What are some of those things? Right. So one thing I've long been enthusiastic about is this idea of having a master directory, just a simple document of what assets you have, where you have them, maybe approximate dollar value, but not something you're having to keep up to the minute fresh, but keeping a master directory like that, letting your executor know of its existence, know how to gain access to it. If you have sensitive information on that master directory, you'd want to keep it safe. So that's one thing. I think it's also really worth writing out just kind of a declaration of what approach you want your loved ones to take to handling your stuff. So uh, I um, thought about for my husband and me writing some sort of a uh, statement saying that we just don't want this to cause agony for our family. We, if, we don't want them to try to get the highest possible dollar for our items. Do whatever brings you peace and is easy for you. That's our wish mm-hmm. for our loved ones. But kind of think that through when you're thinking about your own personal assets. 
There are also articles of um, sort of personal articles that you, that may fall outside of your will. Maybe there are things that aren't important enough to go within your will. They might not have a lot of monetary value, but have a lot of value to you personally. Your attorney, if you have an estate plan, can create what's called a, a memorandum of personal articles that will document some of those assets, who you want to go to. In doing an estate plan, my husband and I found a lot of comfort in creating a not You don't want to have every last item on that uh, memorandum, but I think just a, sort of a basic articulation of some of your favorite things, going to some of your favorite people, that to me is a, a great extension of an estate plan and something you can easily do on your own. You don't necessarily have to get an attorney involved. Another thing you say that sort of relates to this is now is a good time to sort of examine your digital documentation. Um, what sort of things should be a part of that process? Right, this is a complicated topic. I've written an article about this topic. The laws are changing fast in this space. Uh, digital assets are changing quickly, especially with the uptake of cryptocurrency. But I think the key thing to keep in mind is to make sure that you're inventorying your digital assets, especially if you have valuable digital assets. But even if you have social media accounts, for example, keep an inventory of where you have some sort of a profile. You may want to keep some documentation or use a password manager that uh, allows access to those accounts and also loop your executor in on what's going on with these digital assets. But this is a space to keep a close eye on. If you have an estate plan and an estate planning attorney, ask the attorney about how best to approach those digital assets because they're increasingly important for all of us. And lastly, we've been hearing about some potential changes to the tax code. Can you summarize those kind of quickly for us and then talk about what implications there might be for estate planning? Sure. There are two biggies on the table right now. One would be a higher capital gains rate than is in place today. That would apply to taxable assets, so assets held outside of company retirement plans and IRAs. So that's one potential change on the table. The other relates to what's called the step-up in cost basis that heirs receive upon someone's death. So the perspective change would put a cap on how many assets can be eligible for that step up in cost basis. None of this is a done deal, and that's, I guess, one major caution here, that this has to get through a divided Congress, a deeply divided Congress. So I wouldn't make any preemptive changes, but nor would I necessarily drag my feet, assuming that big changes might be coming, so I don't want to get into drafting an estate plan. I'd go ahead and draft those documents, most estate planning attorneys are mindful that there could be some changes and ideally would create a plan that could adjust if there were in fact some changes to the estate laws. So um, watch this space but don't necessarily put off or accelerate any changes to an estate plan just because you worry that these changes might be coming. Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and for giving us some to-dos for August that um, could have far-ranging consequences for ourselves and for our heirs. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Shabinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Next, here are Karen Wallace from Morningstar, Inc. and Chris Inton from Morningstar Research Services. 
Hi, I'm Karen Wallace from Morningstar. There's a lot of talk about cannabis these days. U.S. Senate Democrats recently released a discussion draft of a bill that would deschedule cannabis on a federal level and recognize states' individual cannabis laws. Though cannabis is legal or set to become legal for both recreational and medical use in 19 states and medical use only in another 17 states, it's still illegal on a federal level, and that uncertainty has clouded this growing industry. I'm here with Chris Inton. He's an equity research strategist for ESG at Morningstar. Chris, what difference would it make if cannabis were no longer illegal on a federal level? The removal of federal prohibition would be a massive boon to the industry, especially financially. First, at present, any industry that does business with or serves the cannabis industry could be considered aiding and abetting criminal activity. The ability to access financial services is one of the most notable limitations. U.S. cannabis companies are neither listed on major U.S. stock exchanges nor fully served by banks. So change to federal law would open these up uh, for the industry. Second, due to IRS laws, U.S. cannabis companies pay very high tax rates as they're technically a federally illegal business. The removal of prohibition would bring rates into the 20% territory that every other industry pays. And then lastly, scientific research would be easier to conduct, including any studies on efficacy, potency, and safety. And this could help remove a lot of the misconceptions that have lingered. So there's been a surge in states legalizing cannabis recently. Um, public support for cannabis legalization really seems to be growing. How likely do you think federal legalization is? Unfortunately, not likely anytime soon. Any cannabis legislation is going to need 60 votes in the Senate because of the filibuster. So not only do Democrats need full alignment within their party, they're going to need 10 Republicans to support it as well. On top of that, President Biden favors decriminalization rather than removal of federal prohibition. So he's unlikely to spend political capital on the issue. But Chris, even with that legal overhang, you see some significant growth potential for the industry. What are you factoring in? So in the next year or so, we expect a banking act to pass that would allow cannabis to access traditional financial services. And then by the end of 2023, we expect that the federal law would be changed to allow states to choose cannabis's legality within their borders. But nonetheless, with or without a change to federal law, we still see massive growth for the legal cannabis industry. Based on our state-by-state -state analysis, we forecast nearly 25% average annual growth for the U.S. recreational market and nearly 15% for the medical market through 2030. And where do you see opportunities among cannabis companies now? So we think that U.S. multi-state operators offer the better risk-adjusted upside compared to their Canadian peers. So we like Cureleaf and Green Thumb Industries. Uh, Four Star, Cureleaf is currently trading at a price to fair value below 0 0.6. And Four Star Green Thumb is trading right around 0 0.6. That's really interesting. Thanks so much for being here to discuss these developments, Chris. Thanks for having me. For Morningstar, I'm Karen Wallace. Thanks for tuning in. And lastly this week, Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services discusses indexing with Susan Jabinski. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. 
iShares MSCI, USA Momentum Factor ETFs, untimely rebalancing into value stocks has hurt performance lately. Here to unpack what happened and to discuss luck in indexing more broadly is Ben Johnson. Ben is Morningstar's Director of Global ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Susan. So let's start out by talking a little bit about this fund's strategy in particular. Uh, It does practice a momentum strategy. How does it execute that? Well, Susan, this fund, no different than any other momentum strategy, looks to harness the momentum factor. And, And what the momentum factor is, is really just the tendency for stocks that have performed either particularly well or particularly poorly to continue to do so over the near term. So it's out there scanning the markets for stocks that have shown strong momentum over the course of the past half year and the past year, bring those stocks into the portfolio, and then do a line change twice a year to make sure that it's continuing to refresh the portfolio to own the stocks that are showing the highest degree of momentum. So then what happened with the fund's recent rebalance and what influence did that have on returns? Well, what we saw in the case of MTUM's May rebalance was that in the period leading up to that rebalance, value stocks were having a very strong run. So coming out of the favorable news that we got last year around vaccines and reopening, many of the old economy stocks, the reopening stocks, whatever you want to label them, really went on a tear. And, And value stocks writ large looked like they were making a comeback after years of languishing. Now, what happened is that by virtue of bouncing off the bottom, these stocks were demonstrating momentum, and greater momentum than the market at large. So when MTUM rebalanced in May, it rebalanced in a big way into some of these value stocks at precisely the moment that their rebound was about to fizzle out. So take, for example, coming into this rebalance, MTUM had over a fifth of its portfolio invested in the FANG M names. So Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, and Microsoft. Coming out of the May rebalance, Google was the last one of the FANG M left standing. So it went from a fifth, more than a fifth of its portfolio in those names to just 5%, having switched in favor of traditional value names, traditional value sectors at precisely the wrong moment. And what we've seen since is that its performance has suffered relative to its Morningstar category index, the Russell 1000 growth. So have we seen other instances in the past of these types of momentum misfires, either specifically with these funds, or have we seen rebalancing misfires like this with other types of funds? Yeah, I think it's important to note that this is really just one example among many within the realm of index funds where we've seen evidence of rebalanced timing luck, and that can be either good or bad luck. This is a topic that we've looked at for some time that Corey Hofstein at Newfound Research has actually published some really tremendous research on that looks at exactly when these different indexes, so be they momentum indexes or value indexes, these aren't you know, necessarily your broad-based market capitalization-weighted indexes, but indexes that for all intents and purposes are a form of active management and active strategy. And look specifically at you know, when do they refresh their portfolios, when do they rebalance, 
And you know, depending on the timing, what you can see after the fact is that in some circumstances, most notable is, is what I refer to as the immaculate rebalance in the case of the Invesco FTSE RAFI US 1000 ETF. PRF is the ticker for that fund. So that fund rebalanced in March of 2009, coming off of the very bottom of one of the worst markets in recent memory, and bought the deepest value names precisely when they were priced to effectively go bankrupt in, in some cases. And ex post, that timing turned out to be very fortunate, that that was very good luck. The MTUM example is just one example among many of bad luck. And I think what many investors need to understand is that even in indexing, especially when indexes, for all intents and purposes, are active strategies, there's a real role being played by luck, no different than with discretionary active management. So then what's the takeaway for investors? If you want to minimize the role of luck in your index portfolio, what do you do? I think first and foremost, you need to understand that no two indexes are created equal and that when you move away from funds that track broad-based market capitalization weighted indexes that might turn over 3 to 5% a year, the role of luck is going to grow over time and, and grow, I think, in large part depending on the amount of rebalancing the type of strategy in question. So a fund like MTUM has never had less than 100% turnover in any given calendar year. So luck is going to play an important role, especially because it turns over just twice in a given year. So investors that are looking at what we call strategic beta funds, smart beta funds, factor funds that have high levels of turnover, luck could very well play a greater role in those portfolios' performance certainly greater than it would in a broad-based market cap-weighted index fund. So know that full well and understand what do those indexes do to try to diminish the role of luck, diminish the role of either favorable or unfavorable timing when it comes to rebalancing. So that could be rebalancing more frequently. That could be rebalancing the portfolio a piece at a time. So there are some index funds that rebalance a quarter of their portfolio at any given quarter during a normal calendar year because they're cognizant of this issue, the potential role of luck, and they want to diminish luck's role and the outcomes that they're delivering for investors. So as with any index strategy, as we do in our own due diligence, it's really important to understand these funds' processes as defined by their index methodologies, which are ultimately the DNA of the portfolio, and what specific features of those methodologies, of these processes, are in there to try to minimize the role of luck in the outcomes for the end investor. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your perspective today on luck and index investing. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates.
Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.